Welcome to another episode of Up To. Nine years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives. And in doing so, we have found there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman. And on this episode, we are joined by Dr. David Agus. We'll be right back. If you're a business owner, an executive, or a rising member of a management team, I don't have to tell you about the importance of having team members and partners you can trust. A firm that I've worked with for years and have trusted myself to refer my colleagues to is Vividfront, an award-winning digital marketing, branding, and website development firm based in Cleveland, Ohio, but with clients all over America. Vividfront's focus is on scaling brands digitally. They create holistic return on investment centric strategies and solutions for middle market companies who want to grow. They do paid advertising, influencer and social media marketing, e-commerce strategies, lead generation websites. I could go on. Their expertise is expansive and their tactful leadership team, all of whom I know, has the entrepreneurial experience to turn ideas into revenue producing business plans. Yes, I am reading a script, but I will tell you that I sought Vividfront out for this podcast because I already believed in them, seeing what they did in the marketplace. So if you're seeking a partner to take your business to the next level, or if you're looking for an opportunity to work for a top agency with an amazing culture, truly an amazing culture, check out their website at vividfront.com or send me a note and I'll introduce you to my friends who run the company there. Vividfront, great organization. Our guest today is a physician, a cancer researcher, an inventor, an author who serves as a professor of medicine and engineering at the University of Southern California, and also as the CEO and co-founder of the Lawrence Ellison Institute for Transformational Medicine. He is the co-founder of several personalized medicine companies and a regular contributor to CBS News on health topics. He is the author of four books, all of which have become New York Times bestsellers. Our guest today's field of expertise is advanced cancer. He has developed new cancer treatments with the aid of private foundations, as well as national agencies, including the National Cancer Institute. He has also served as chair of the Global Agenda Council on Genetics for the World Economic Forum and presently co-chairs the Global Health Security Consortium. He's earned his degrees from some of the most respected universities in the world, a Princeton undergrad, University of Pennsylvania for medical school, and then Johns Hopkins for advanced training. His list of accomplishments and awards would take up much of this program if we were to read them all. But two that stand out to me are that he received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor Award in 2017. Maybe we can talk about that and the Health Network Foundation Service Excellence Award in 2008. And although he never discusses these things, others have written and major personalities themselves have offered that our guest today has been or continues to be their go-to physician. Big figures such as heads of state, major corporate leaders like Larry Ellison and Oprah Winfrey, rockers like Joey Ramone and Neil Young, and the king of all media, Howard Stern. Perhaps most famously, our guest today was one of the lead physicians for Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. His latest book, Animal Secrets, describes him as a man who works at, quote, the convergence of a number of disciplines, biology, physics, math, engineering, technology, and the clinical sciences. Now, I would add, I'm going to ask for his editor, I would add entrepreneurship and also media communications to your areas of discipline. He does so much. What an intro. David Agus, welcome to the Up To Podcast. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be back with a friend talking about meaningful topics. Well, what have you been up to, my friend? Uh, it's been busy. I mean, obviously, we had this little pesky virus that seemed to stop the world for a few years. And so we worked a lot on global policy with that. And now, you know, our institute 
is expanding into the UK. So we're opening at University of Oxford. So wow. continuing the work we're doing on cancer, on wellness, on global health, and expanding us from just not Los Angeles and USC, also the University of Oxford, who bring a whole different perspective to the things we're doing. Wow, congratulations. I didn't know about that. So the Ellison Institute is expanding like with another university over there or why Oxford or how does that come about? During COVID, we started working with a guy named Sir John Bell, who's the Regis, which is the royal professor in the UK. And my team and his team got along very well and things started to expand. And a lot of the things we did on the global side tied in with Oxford. Um, and the synergy there really was clear. They have very different skill sets and expertise than we do here at the Institute. So we're building a building. Norman Foster, who built the Apple Spaceship Campus, is our architect. And I got to wow. know him through Steve Jobs, uh, you know, obviously watching him and Steve argue over and over about building of that campus. And now he's building our campus, which will be ready in 2025 um, for the researchers and scientists we have there. How exciting. That's terrific. When I asked, what have you been up to? I didn't think about uh, you expanding um, overseas. That's just tremendous. D David, have you ever thought about, well, first, do you know how many physicians there are in the United States? I looked this up this morning. No, I don't. There's 1.1 million in the U.S. And I think you might be the most renowned physician and I'm sure you don't think about that, but I really believe you are. It's my privilege to, I pinch myself every day that I get to do research, I get to work on big issues, and especially that people put their care into my hands. I mean, it really is a privilege to be able to help them uh, fight a disease um, and, and to work in the lab to try to cure diseases. I, I love what I do. You're humble, that's why you're on this program, The 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 theme of this program is leaders who are as humble as they are successful. But if I were to tell you that you are among the most renowned physicians in the United States, if not the world, like how do you digest that? Or do you ever think about maybe your competitive spirit that led you to this point? Or maybe if you haven't, allow yourself to do so now. Like the achievements of only a few that I rattled off here are just tremendous. Well, I mean, to me, it's actually the opposite. The failures are, are evident, is that I lose people to cancer almost every week. And so we are not winning the war on cancer at all. And I need, and I have to get better at what I do. And that's what drives me over mm. and over is seeing pain and suffering and realizing that you know my field isn't where it needs to be. And so it's what keeps me up at night. It's what makes me, I'm one of those weird people. I know you're going to give me a weird look, Adam, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> but shockingly, much of what happens in my science world, on my medical world, happens in dreams at night. I dream through scenarios. In my sleep, I play through what will happen. And believe it or not, the next day, I have better ideas on what should happen. And so, you know, at night, I play through with this patient. Should I do drug X or drug Y? or this science, maybe this new idea of a way to approach a problem. It's, it's, it's a weird thing to say, but the sleep actually has an impact. My dreams affect what I do the next day. I don't think that's weird. I think that's enviable. I'd love to have some motivational dreams or some uncovering secrets dreams. Actually, on my questions for you today was how much well, you, you know do how sleep. how embarrassing it is to say to a patient, you know, well, let me sleep tonight and I'll tell you the answer tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Actually, one of my questions prepared for you was going to be, how much do you sleep? Because I really do not know how you do all that you do. So maybe part of your sleeping is productive as well. You're not even just resting, which I know you tell us all we need to rest. Well, you know, I wear, I'm a geek. I wear those devices so that I can actually optimize my deep sleep, my REM sleep, et cetera. And okay. so what I realized, you know, is if I watch TV or look at my iPad before I go to bed, I don't get enough deep sleep. So I wear the blue light glasses that enable me to get a deeper sleep at night that block the blue wavelengths of light. Mm. I realize if I eat dinner later, I don't sleep well. So I try to eat dinner earlier. If I have more than a glass of wine, it affects my sleep. I have this feedback thing. So, cause I realize that it's critically important to what I do. I don't go out during the week, right? Mm. I only go out on weekends. And so every night I am home. I eat dinner and I can go to bed early. So I have to get up very early. It works. I mean, it really adds necessity. I have a relatively boring life that enables me to do what I do.
Well, let's break that down a little bit. Like, how, like how early do you eat and then go to sleep? Like, what's the time frame? And this this is really helpful. Like, if you have dinner at seven at home during the week, are you going to bed at like ten thirty or what? How much time do we need? I go to bed at. I mean, I have dinner around six, and I okay. go to bed normally eight thirty to nine. Okay, so um, early. And I'm up in the morning, you know, kind of three to four. So I get a good six hours of sleep um, or six and a half hours of sleep most nights. Um, and I'm pretty good at falling asleep and staying asleep during that period as long as I know the things that will make me not sleep and as long as I do them. Exercise is another key one. I'm one of those people. We're all different. I mean, there's no right and wrong here. Right. I need to exercise in the morning to get good sleep. If I exercise in the evening, it doesn't work. That adrenaline keeps going and I don't sleep well. So I've kind of learned my behaviors I have to do mm -hmm. and I try to stick to them, which means I, a lot of things I can't do, right? If somebody has a party during the week, I don't go. I try not to go out to dinners during the week. And, you know, you have to give up certain things to optimize on others. But again, the privilege of what I do means I'm happy to do that. Yeah. So you're doing these sacrificial decisions to optimize your own performance, whether it's flying to Japan for patients or being on TV in the morning on the East Coast or taking care of, uh, you know, your clinicians on your staff there in Los Angeles. So I think that high performers in any industry could learn from this. Years ago, you taught me that our bodies love routine, whatever the routine is, and different bodies prefer different routines. And I'm, I'm a morning person. So like, if I don't work out before eight or nine, I'm not going to work out that day. So I, I, I can remember, I don't know how many years ago, you told me like, whatever your preferred workout time is, try to do that every day. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we've, well, fortunately, we've known each other for a long time. <laughs> yeah, we said yeah. how long it was, people will know how old we are. So we don't want right. to do that. Right. Um, but yeah, I listen, I, I exercise, I do things, first of all, that make me uncomfortable, because I think that's important. Mm -hmm. it, it's very easy to keep doing what you're good at, right? I'm good at X, so I keep doing X. I want to do things that challenge me. You know, I play tennis twice a week and mm. I love it. I'm not great at it. And I love it because first of all, I need to get better. And then also it's the sport most associated with longevity, right? It's stop, start, stop, start. It's not huh. continuously pushing. And that stop starting is good. You know, I don't know how, if you remember Jim Fix when we were growing up, he was the marathon runner. Oh yeah. This amazing book. And he was the person and he dropped dead of a heart attack. Why? Because marathon running is associated with sudden death, right? You keep right. pushing, your heart gets bigger to compensate. You can get cardiac arrhythmias and sudden death. And, and so it's really important to do things that you can do for a long time. I love tennis because it's a, it's a social sport. I can play with my kids. Mm -hmm. I can play with friends, which make it easier. I played basketball when I was younger. If I kept doing that, there's no way I could stay healthy because it's, it's too violent and aggressive. I would hurt something. This is a sport I could play for the rest of my life, which I love. You, uh, told me years ago as well that marathon running is not good for the, the human body. I think every physician I've ever talked to, whether it's an orthopedic doctor, cardiovascular doctor, or otherwise has said that I did my last marathon when I was 40, I'm 52 now, so we won't do that anymore. But uh, we took up kayaking recently. It's a little less uh, <laughs> challenging right. on the heart, but it's so relaxing. And I think there's different benefits to that kind of mental side. My wife and I love kayaking together on Lake Erie. Well, listen, it's great. I mean, it, you know, any of those kind of things where you can you know, stop, start, stop, start, push yourself. And obviously, the more you do things in nature, the better it is. You know, the human mm -hmm. brain evolved to he or she who could find something in the wild and make their way back to the village survive. So physical activity together with pattern recognition in nature is what's great for our brain. You getting out on a lake is exactly that. Mm. I want to get into something you just said about nature in your new book. You introduced the concept of nature therapy, but let me first, that'll be the next question. First, let me ask you, when was the moment early in your life when you decided you want to become an oncologist, even not just a physician, because as you mentioned, you're losing battles weekly with certain patients. So was there a moment that you can recall where you decided that was going to be your area of focus? I know your your grandfather was a rabbi, one of your grandfathers, your father was a professor. So like, when did you know what you wanted to pursue? You know, I knew I wanted to do something where I was in charge, right? I didn't want to be a consultant. And there are a lot of amazing doctors 
who it's transactional. Someone comes to you, you say what to do, and you they send them back to their GP or their other doc. I really wanted to manage care. And when I decided to go into cancer, there wasn't months. I still watch much treatment to do. So I still remember going into my head of medicine at Hopkins and saying, I'm going to go into oncology. He looked at me and goes, David, it's career suicide. It's just giving hmm. poisons to people. You know, go into cardiology or pulmonary because you're smart. That's where you can really impact lives. And to me, that doubled my resolve. I wanted to go where people weren't. I wanted mm. to go into a field that hadn't yet been, you know, made modern and didn't have many of the treatments. We had some old time chemotherapy drugs. We had no molecular targeted therapy. We had no immunotherapy. We didn't have the ability to sequence the genes of the cancer then. We just gave chemotherapy. And the hope is, is that the toxicity to the cancer was greater than the toxicity to the host. That was mm. our goal. Mm -hmm. And so that was the old days. And so what's exciting is, it really was my generation it was one of the first generations that could have all these new tools to make an impact on the disease. And it was a privilege. I was one of the first ever to go from Hopkins to Sloan Kettering. You know, at Hopkins, oncology is still not part of the Department of Medicine. Again, because hmm. it wasn't considered a real science. It was literally giving poisons. So it was its own department um, and hmm. it wasn't allowed into medicine, an academic department. So now, obviously, it is a hot and exciting field because we have drugs that work. They don't cure the disease, but they could certainly lessen the suffering and prolong life. And that's hmm. certainly part of our goal. We want to cure, we want to eliminate that pain and suffering, but we now have tools that are helping us get there. I'm grateful that Calfee, Halter, and Griswold has once again agreed to partner with us. With offices in Ohio and Washington, D.C., this full-service national law firm focuses on all aspects of business and the law, including corporate and finance, intellectual property, and government relations. Let me be clear. I actually approach companies with whom I would like to partner. We just don't accept marketing dollars from anyone. I have been referring my CEO and entrepreneur friends to Calfi for years. I really believe in the firm. One of their notable practice areas is in mergers and acquisitions. And recently, for instance, I introduced a successful entrepreneur in the Midwest to Calfi when he told me that a European-based conglomerate wanted to buy his business. Calfi works with large corporations as well as privately held companies throughout the U.S. and Canada and in Europe and Asia, too. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, and you can find them at calfee.com or on the Up2 Foundation website. And I've really marveled at how you've expanded your um, impact on the world of health and well-being by not focusing exclusively on cancer. This new book, Animal Secrets, is a prime example. We're not talking just about cancer in that book. Probably my favorite of your books is The End of Illness. I can't remember if that was your first book, but I love that one the most. Was that your first one? It was my first one. You know, I was a straight scientist in the lab. I was the geeky guy playing with the test tubes and the mice and doing the experiments. And I still remember the day I tell about the story of my new book where I'm at Sloan Kettering, great cancer hospital in New York City. And there's a knock on the door and I look up and literally almost dropped all my test tubes because it was Andy Grove, who was that year's time Intel. man of the year the CEO of Intel, one of the great leaders. And, you know, to me, he was a hero. And all of a sudden, he's locking on the door of my lab, which literally was like the size of a single bed, my lab at Sloan Kettering. And I was like, Dr. Grove, what are you doing here? And he came in and he goes, you know, I like your science, David, but you're a horrible public speaker. I go, well, mm. well, why does that matter? Isn't my job to make discoveries in the lab? He goes, no, part of your obligation as a scientist, as a doctor, is to educate. If taxpayer money is funding your research, part of your job is to educate people about science and medicine. And he used to send me a thing. Do you remember faxes, those little pieces of paper that <laughs> yeah. came out of a machine oh, magically? Yeah. They were rolled to up faxes. too. Yeah. Yes. And they used to smell funny when you smelled them afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right, but right. He used to tell me where to show up every day after work at five or six o'clock in New York City to give a lecture. And he pushed me in one year to do 200 talks, whether it be a bank or a lab or a high school just to get better at public speaking because it was part of my job to do so. Hmm. And again, making me uncomfortable, do something I wasn't good at to get better, and it changed my life. Did you already know him at that point? Or like, why does he poke in and tell you that? I had published a paper that he had read and was excited. And he, at the time, 
um, uh, was very important. You know, he had been diagnosed with cancer. He wrote an article about his choice of treatment, and he realized that he wanted to make an impact. And so he was getting into the cancer space and visiting cancer docs around that he wanted to talk to. And hmm. we became close. You know, shortly thereafter, one of the big cancer research meetings, we went and I gave a talk and he gave a talk. And he talked to remember those acetates where he would write and it would show up on the, the board through this projector. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he gave a talk to all the cancer researchers. And it was brilliant about how in Intel, they risk the entire company every time they make a chip. In my space, we never take risks. We do one experiment to another experiment. We're very conservative because we want to get grants. We want to get funding. We don't really go for the big one. And he really pushed in that regard. And then afterwards, he said, David, I'm flying uh, uh, you know, back to New York. Do you want to come with me on my plane? I was like, sure. We got on the plane and then he offered me a beer. And it's like when you're you know, 19 years old or 18, your father offers you a beer to see if you drink. It was a test. And I'm probably 35 and I'm looking and saying, do I say yes or no? And I was so scared whether I should accept a beer from him or not on that plane mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because he was this amazing figure and maybe it was a test. But I said, yes, we both had mm -hmm. a beer and he became a mentor for me the rest of his life. You and I didn't uh, fly on a private plane when you said something similar to me. But one time at a USC football game, you did say to me something similar. You said, Adam, you love California. I don't know if you remember this. You, I can tell you love it out here. I was coming out calling on you for my work pursuits at the time and we were developing a bit of a friendship. Adam, I can tell you love it out here. When are you gonna come West, you said to me. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, the Midwest is okay. You kind of hit for singles and doubles, but out here in California, we swing for the fences. And I was like, wow, like who thinks of that? And you admitted that Andy Grove said something similar to you. But you said that to me many, many years ago. Now, li now you listened to Andy Grove. I didn't listen to you. I'm sorry. But at least we're here digitally together. And things change here in my field, especially. You know, it's not hierarchical, right? You don't have to wait till you're a full professor at age 50 to do the big experiments. Mm. Here, you know, they, they, it's a meritocracy. Very different than the East Coast, where it really is that hierarchy. Um, and the East Coast does many amazing things, but here, you know, you, you can really try for things that are more aggressive and I, it's changed my life being here in the West Coast. Yeah. And in my, in my day job in, in venture and working with entrepreneurs, you know, I, I definitely risk is much more tolerated uh, out West. There's, there's no, no, there's no debating that. Uh, do you think that was your first big break? Like interacting with someone like the time man of the year, or were you already on a pretty good path or is there some other key moment that really opened up some new doors you never thought you'd be able to walk through? Yeah, you know, I got very lucky many times um, in that I had very good mentors and, you know, I was in the right time at the right place with some of the experiments we did. And luckily, some of them had benefit. Some of the drugs we worked on in the lab ended up getting FDA approved and out there for patients. And it helps make your career when there's some successes. Um, so, yeah, no, I was very, very lucky. I've always had amazing people where I can go and discuss what was going on to get advice from and have them push and make me be uncomfortable. Did you ever doubt yourself? Were you ever in a setting, though, maybe early on? How did I how did I get into this situation where I'm presenting to the Israeli Knesset or some other group? Like, do you ever wonder how did I get here? I, I still do. I mean, I, you know, I was with our clinic last week and. I was talking to my whole team and, you know, there are 50 people in the room and I'm talking. I said, listen, is it as shocking if you look across from myself on down, we're all OK. Together, we're amazing and we can do something, you know, unique together. But it's remarkable that the people that they do put their life into our hands. And the day you stop pinching yourself saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. That's mm -hmm. the day I should retire. Mm -hmm. um, I love the fact that every day I'm saying, really, this is me doing this. I'm in this crazy situation, giving, you know, talking to a head of state, helping, you know, somebody with their cancer, their life, you know, they're trusting to me. The day I don't realize it's special is the day I shouldn't be doing it. Hmm. I mean, all of this sounds quite natural coming out of your mouth, but there are so many physicians that really, you know, get big heads, feel like they're in a godlike role, and, and you, you have none of that. And I wonder if that's just something that's inside you or is that something that has to be worked on? I'm just really asking you an authentic question here because 
I know so many physicians who aren't nearly as accomplished as you, but who really think that they're, you know, God's gift to society. It's the disease I study is the great equalizer. Um, mm. I think it brings me down all the time. You know, cancer is the one disease where every time we treat it, it gets stronger, right? It gets more resilient every drug we give to it. And it, it makes me realize how much more work we have to do literally on a daily basis. I can mm. have the worst day and I walk in and I know my day will get better tomorrow, but I see a patient suffering and I'm not sure it's going to get better tomorrow for them. So that's what drives me. Mm. And no matter what happens to me, I can say, hey, listen, I know it's worse what they're going through. I have the privilege of helping. And everybody says, well, it must be so depressing. I mean, to me, it's the opposite, right? I can help somebody, even if I can't cure their disease and they're going to pass away from their disease, I can make them live better and longer and more quality life and mm. make them realize what's important. It's the greatest privilege ever to be able to do so. So every time I go in the, the, the clinic, it really pulls me down so I can never get a big head dealing with what I do. This disease hmm. wins. That's a good answer. Yeah, I didn't expect that. So the work actually humbles you. The, you can't afford to get too cocky because every day you're, you're battling uh, something stronger than you. We don't cure advanced metastatic cancer. Um, it will win. And so that right there means that I am not good enough at what I do and I have to get better. Mm. Well, something you are very good at is writing. And this newest book, Animal Secrets, uh, I think it's a general consumer audience myself, but I wanted to ask you, like, who did you write it for? I am so excited, first of all, about this book. Um, okay. You know, it was amazing to me to go out in nature you know, I was on safari in Africa with our my wife and the kids. Coolest trip we ever took. And I'm there with the guide. And these elephants walk by, which are the most majestic creature in the world. And I said, listen, look at them. They're enormous. They're 40 times bigger than you or I. They have, you know, orders of magnitude more cells. So they must get lots of cancer. Because every time a cell divides, you can get a mutation and get cancer. He looked at me as if I was stupid and said, elephants don't get cancer. And I was like, oh, my gosh, here's a clue. If we can recapitulate why they don't get cancer, maybe we could prevent human cancers. We've gone on to see is that you and I have a gene called P53 that corrects error in DNA. It's called the guardian of the genome. We each have one copy. Every elephant on every continent has 20 copies of this gene. Hmm. So, oh, my gosh, it was this eureka moment. Now, we have to figure out how to restore the function of P53 that blocks inflammation associated DNA damage. So we either block inflammation or we can correct the error in DNA that it causes and we can prevent cancer. And so more and more of these stories came out as I looked because we've been on this earth for a million years. So has every one of these creatures and they've adapted certain ways different than ours and we can learn from them. Hmm. I also read chimpanzees don't get cancer Does it, in your book. Does that mean that most animals do not or is it vary or so most do get cancer um you know chimpanzees unfortunately don't live that long a life which is part of the reason they don't get as cancer okay. you know mice die of cancer hmm. um you know dogs die of cancer many of the animals in nature do but it's very interesting by the time you and i classically through nature in our 20s and 30s we have had our children so evolution doesn't care about us anymore because evolution hmm. cares about good progeny for the next generation. Elephants, the females give birth into the late 60s or early 70s. The dominant male protects the herd until the day he dies. So in a sense, they couldn't afford to get cancer. If they knock you off young, Adam, you know, there's more food and housing for the next generation throughout our evolution. Mm. But if you knock an elephant off young, all of a sudden the herd isn't protected and there aren't gonna be new progeny within the herd. And so it's very different, the evolutionary pressures on the two different species. So who, who should read this book? Any human or physicians or parents? You know, it's funny, the, uh, uh, when I wrote it, the, the publisher said, the first thing I always say is, who do you wanna do blurbs? I go, I want one person. I want one person that is trusted because science got so political in this stupid last three years we all went through. Yeah. I want one person who rose above politics, who cares about animals, both from the conservation side and the health side, and is Jane yeah. Goodall. Right. And I texted Jane Goodall and I said, listen, on the will back you cover. do me a favor yeah. and read the book and will you write a blurb? And she goes, uh, David, I have two words for you. I go, what are those? She goes, hell yes. And I was like, oh, 
<laughs> Did she already know you? We we had met through a number of things, um, and so she read the book. She wrote it, but this is a book written for everybody. I mean, the hope is it gives you excitement by learning about the stories. What better way to explain people about health than tell stories? So stories about animals and their history, and with all of them, we do these you know creature cheat sheets. We say at the end, you know, how this is news you can use, and that's how it helps the human condition and what we can learn from it. But I like telling stories. Um, it's a way thing people remember. And at the same time, it gives us a reason, although it's crazy that we need that, to conserve nature. And so, you know, I hate the fact that you need a reason to conserve. But if ever, there's a reason to conserve because these animals in nature, we continually learn from and they mm -hmm. are very important to our humanity. The back cover with the Jane Goodall quote reminds me of the inside back cover, the flap, where authors always list their own accomplishments. And again, your humility comes out. You literally say something like, um, or the, the editor writes, I'm sure with your approval, uh, David Agus, he lives with his family and he's the CEO of a center and he teaches at USC. It's like so understated what you do. I mean, if people only saw your CV with everything else you've done, but I, I love that your humility comes out even on the back cover. I'm sure that was intentional. Well, I don't know if it's intentional, but I'm sure you like that. Listen, I, uh, what I love is the dedication of the book. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but you know, I, I dedicated to this woman named Georgie who, you know, I said, gave me the remarkable oxytocin boost. You know, if I, what you learn from nature, if, if I look at you in the eye, it actually boosts your oxytocin. It's the love hormone. Mm. And so because of that, Georgie is my dog. And so okay. because of looking <laughs> at the dog in the eye and the oxytocin boost she has, she enabled me to write the book. It probably took twice as long because of all the breaks I had with her and all the disturbing me she did, but it literally <laughs> is what drives me during the pandemic when you know my field didn't stop, right? We didn't get to stay home or work from home because cancer didn't stop. Right. We had to be here. And then dealing with many of the global issues in the pandemic, you know, what really, you know, brought me this joy was my family and this dog. I mean, dogs don't realize how bad a day you had. They don't care. Mm. They just want to have the joy of the moment with you. And it's something we can really learn from, right? Is that they can have something horrible happen. And then 10 minutes later, they can have joy in their eyes. But do the experiment, right? When you look at a dog, you know, look in the eye, feel that love hormone, feel that oxytocin mm. pulse through your veins. It works. It kind of reminds me of the naivete of youth, like children and infants don't really know if we have adult drama going on and they'll still smile at us. And that's that's refreshing, too, in a similar way, I bet. I wanted to ask you something about this book specifically. Uh, you talk about nature therapy. I never heard of that phrase before, but it makes sense. My brother just uh, hiked his longest hike ever in Colorado. It was like three peaks in 20 hours, some really rigorous hike. And he was saying that it meant, he said this to me on the phone at the same time I was reading your book, mentally, it, it allowed him to have some breakthroughs. And I was like, what do you mean breakthroughs? And he explained to me some kind of mental challenges he was letting himself meander through while he was hiking. And it kind of reminded me, David, of your nature therapy benefits that you chronicle in this book. Can you talk a little bit about nature therapy? I guess it's even being prescribed now by uh, Western physicians. You know, if you say kids, hey, run around, you know, and in a gym, and then you give them an aptitude test, they actually improve their scores by about 10%. If you say run around in nature, the scores improve by 18 to 19%. Hmm. The human brain responds to nature. If you walk through our building here, every place has a window and through the windows, we only see green. Every color in the building is a color in nature. That's if intentional. I put you, Adam, in a pink room, you're gonna feel uncomfortable. You're not gonna be that creative. And I put you in a room with colors in nature, your brain relaxes and you can actually, you know, be more creative and more productive. Hmm. And so it is important that we spend time in nature. It's how our brains evolved, right? Is that physical uh, activity together with that pattern recognition, walking in a field, walking in a park where we're seeing the trees, the grass, all of the parts of nature is actually what relaxes us and enables hmm. us to have things that happen during the day to set in. So downtime is what enables us to remember what happened during the day. The people who work nonstop and then go to sleep, nothing sinks in. So you need yeah. that downtime, 30 to 60 minutes every day, 
in order for the things that happen to be remembered and sink in so that you're going to be more productive. So downtime is not non-productivity. It's actually part of productivity. If you do that within nature, the outcome is going to be better. The blood pressure is going to go down. There are a lot of physiologic functions we can show that normalize within nature. Hmm. I like hearing that when I used to have a larger staff and some of the workers would like be too busy to go have lunch. You know, they're just, they got too much work and I just would try not to roll my eyes, but I really encourage them, even if they weren't going to eat because they were dieting or something, at least stop working for a little while. I didn't have the proof that you're now citing, but I just had a hunch that their afternoons would be more productive if they stopped working midday for a little bit. Sounds like that was a good hunch. Your hunch is pattern recognition. You probably saw it. You may not consciously realize it, but you saw the people that broke were probably more productive. So that hunch is what happens. I mean, great leaders have great pattern recognition and they act on that pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, many times we don't know why. I can look under a microscope and I know no matter what it says, that's going to be an aggressive cancer. I can't always tell you why, but it's, again, it's my pattern recognition. And the beauty of today's world, what's so exciting to me, is that that's what makes the great docs better than the good docs. That's where AI is going to come in. Because mm-hmm. AI is better than pattern, rec- pattern recognition as long as you train it with the right models um, than we are. And so mm-hmm. it will enable the good to become great. And everyone can start to equal care across the country because we have remarkably disparate care. And that's not right. Everybody deserves the best. And the beauty of what's happening now with AI is going to bring everybody to that same level. You're now bringing up a topic that I planned on broaching for sure, artificial intelligence. I know you already use that in your practice, currently a form of it. Uh, Years ago, you introduced me to Navigenics. After that, Applied Proteomics, another one of your companies. So how are you using artificial intelligence today? And then a separate question, you know, what are you most excited about how you'll be able to use it a little bit further in the future? I mean, it's so cool how we use it now. So let's say you're a woman with breast cancer. Right. What I would do is I stick a needle in and I I, I make the diagnosis. You have breast cancer. And then over the next three weeks, I have to do a bunch of studies, genetic studies. Is the gene called HER2 on, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor? And based on that, I know if I'm going to give you hormonal therapy, no therapy, we could just watch it. Or I have to give you aggressive chemotherapy and what kind of surgery to do. So we have the crazy idea that depending on what gene was on, that's how that will dictate the biology. And that's how the cells will be arranged. The nucleus will be different. They'll be arranged differently with on the slide. So now with a slide, just from the biopsy with AI, I can tell you what gene is off. Don't have to wait the three weeks. Don't have to spend thousands of dollars sequencing the DNA. Just with AI, I can tell you by looking at them, which is the gene. There was a paper published last week from our group that was able to show these are people who presented with a brain metastasis to an emergency room. Nobody knew they had cancer. And we were able to take that and look under the microscope with AI and say, hey, this gene is on, give them a pill. And in those individuals, the disease got better. Normally we would have to radiate the whole brain or do this crazy Mm. surgery, which will radically affect both the quality and the longevity that they have. Here, instantaneously, I can start them on a treatment. So AI can tell me the biology, what drugs to use. So we're at the beginning of this new era. You know, right now, electronic health records, when your doctor sees you, he or she write, you know, something, and it's a bag of words right now, right? There are a bunch of words that describe your encounter with a doctor every time you went there. So there's a movement now uh, changing that with large language models. This is the chat GPTs of others world that can understand what words are. And to put that into structured data, and then we can use AI. I would bet you that most of the drugs we have now are all of the drugs we need. We're just not hmm. using them right. And what AI will do it will enable us to use them better, more appropriately in different settings. A study just came out showing if you would advance ovarian cancer or want a beta blocker, which is an inexpensive drug for blood pressure, you live four and a half years longer than if you don't. We would never find that from biology. But AI showed us now, and now it's being validated in clinical trials. So it really is going to open a new era in medicine, and it's instantaneous. If I want to make a, an antibody to a virus, a bacteria, or a cancer, it takes several years to do it in a mouse to get it to high enough affinity so it works. If you treat every amino acid and antibody as a word, just like in the large language models, with computing, you could do it in two hours. 
So two years to two hours. So the field is changing literally overnight. The challenge is, you know, that it can be taken advantage of. The challenge is if the data going in isn't excellent, you can get the wrong. And we are a business that has zero fault tolerance. So you need to make sure that the data going in is accurate and correct and is representative across the broad streams of society, has every rate that's knit the others in there so you can get the right answer for all of us. I didn't want to interrupt you, and that was a great summary, but in that first example, the breast cancer scenario, it sounds like you're suggesting that AI tools, AI software will allow you to be um, faster in your personalization of what needs to happen next because of what genes are turned on or not. So it's like a, it's a faster tool in that first example, right? Faster. Well, it's faster. Is it also more still, accurate? That's what I'm wondering. Is it, it more accurate? It'll probably be as accurate now. It will get more accurate over time. Right now okay. it's as accurate, but about 60 to 65% of people don't get DNA sequencing at all of their cancer. They don't have the resources. It's mm. not available in their community. This is in the United States. So mm-hmm. this will be something that is scalable and accessible to all. Then mm-hmm. you look at the developing world. We're not treating breast cancer in sub-Saharan Africa because we can't do the tests to know how to treat it. All of a sudden, this could be turned on for literally almost no cost and enable us to treat people in sub-Saharan Africa. We're mm-hmm. developing the first clinical trial network within Africa now to start to put these ideas into play and have it so we can actually roll through Pfizer, remarkable company, put their entire pipeline for cost available to the Mm. citizens of Africa and developing countries, which is pennies a pill. Now we have to develop the tools to enable them to use it. So in the um, artificial intelligence commentary, you also said we need to be sure to be putting in the right data, the unbiased, appropriate data, well representative of all segments of society. Any thoughts on how do we do that or how do we ensure that occurs? Is the government asking you? You're on different committees. So it's the Spider-Man argument, right? Remember, Spider-Man's uncle said, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And and, and so this is great power. There's no question about it. And we're going to need governance on it. So I'm talking to the White House and many other places about how we're going to do it in our space. I don't want to hold it back through extreme regulation. But at the same time, we need to have rules on transparency, what the algorithms, the data they were described on, how we structure and how we use it appropriately so we can use it in a privacy protected way to mm-hmm, enable, mm-hmm. enable better health care. And that's not an easy thing to use. You know, I don't know if people remember IBM Watson and things like that early days. You mm-hmm. know, many of their conclusions were wrong. And we, again, we have no fault tolerance in our business. We will not accept a wrong conclusion from a computer about a treatment for a patient. So we need to know exactly what are the risks, exactly what is the the, the likelihood that the answer is correct in order that we can act on it. Mm. Many times companies don't want that. They want to give you a binary outcome. Yes, no. Um, But we need that underlying transparency so we can do the right thing. You you mentioned a few things there that relate to uh, something I wanted to ask you. The uh, AI governance question, but also reflecting on the pandemic and some of the global health work that you did. I've always admired how people from all persuasions look up to you, it seems like, because I know people who are liberal and conservative who both think quite fondly of you. How can we bring more trust back to public health in the United States? Are there steps that the government could take or physicians or journalists? How can we restore, I think, that needed public trust? You know, in order to get normative behavior change, you need leadership. And what we saw during the pandemic, for example, that the behaviors, whether it be wearing a mask, testing, all of those, or vaccines, you know, is something that was sorely lacking from the leadership we have. We need to get unbiased, apolitical individuals who can start to give um, broad data out there. And what people have to realize is that there's not black and white in my field. Many times there's a shade of gray. For the first time during COVID, that excuse me, that's healthy. We went. I love that you said that, that there's gray. There's, it's not always black and white. I mean, that, I, I, I think everything would be better if you were in charge of all, I know I interrupted you, but if you were in charge of all these public health recovery efforts in terms of trust, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, acknowledging it's, it's I mean, gray. Listen, I, I, I've always thought about going into something like that. What I realized, you have to know yourself. I am not tolerant of 
people who say stupid things and I would get in trouble for <laughs> yeah. arguing back to people who are saying stupid things in a non-political, non-nice way. And I know that my talents are best used otherwhere because of it. I told many people that's that good discipline positions. So I know myself and I know yeah. in my role now, I love what I do and it's amazing. It's wild, right? We are a country that just doesn't collect data. We let states have their own rights. We really thought, you know, if I said, Adam, give me all your credit card data, give me all your financial data, everything about your spending, and I will make a decision whether you get a home mortgage or not. You see no problem. I don't even know who you are, but I'm going to send you all my stuff. Mm. If I said, I want to use your healthcare data in a privacy protected way, totally anonymized, you say, whoa, it's healthcare data. We have to change that attitude. Our country took all of its policy decisions during COVID based on a small Middle Eastern country of 6 million people. That is Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Israel had data, which enabled us to make all of our decisions because we had none, zero, zilch here in the United States. Mm. And it's absolutely crazy. We have to start to collect data. We need healthcare leadership that people trust, and we need to do it in a political way. I mean, in a political way. It's not a position that the president or a party should appoint. Mm -hmm. It needs to be separated from politics. There are amazing people in our space. Many of them are scared because of the media of going into a healthcare leadership position. You look at what happened with Fauci. Him, his family threatened in ways that just were not appropriate, whether you liked him or not. You don't threaten him. You mm -hmm. don't make fun of him. You can argue and have a, a, an intelligent discourse back and forth. But at the same time, we just got so aggressive on the media side, it scared most good people from going into it. Mm. That is scary. Um, I would say that it added to the tension when platforms didn't allow the, the different views, but um, I don't want to even get into that. I just wish that you were in charge of bringing trust back uh, to the public health arena. And I, I know you'll have a voice privately, if not publicly. It's it's interesting you mentioned Israel because last night I was listening to the Lex Friedman podcast. That's my second favorite podcast. Um, but Benjamin Netanyahu was on and he was talking just like you are about Israel's really intentional um, six million strong trying to get as much information as possible about each of their citizens and how much that's benefited, not only their COVID efforts, but other health management issues. And I don't know why we can't do that in America. Obviously America is much larger, but we could at least try to go in that direction. There's no question about it. I mean, we're in a new era now, um, you know, until today, right? Every hospital had their own servers, you know, that kept all their data in a hospital. Right. What we're seeing is, you know, all of a sudden they're being broken into. You know, IT staff at most hospitals are not the best in the world. Mm. Nowadays, we can put this all in the cloud, which is going to be dramatically more secure, more accessible, enable everything to be the top of the best version of things, <clears throat> and also enable to be structured data that we can learn from and act on. Mm. This is going to be the new generation of healthcare. And it's also going to be a, an era where you collect your own data. Right. The notion that you go to your doctor's office, they draw blood, they check your blood pressure, they collect data and they call you a few days later with the results. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't you collect a month of blood pressure data? Shouldn't you go and have your finger pricked at work and all the data is at your doctor's office. When you go in, you can actually talk and get an understanding of what's going on. I love that, whether it's an aura ring or other wearables or when I did the 23andMe test, I sent my results to your office just to have them so that you'd be a little more knowledgeable about my specific body. I think it's empowering for us to know as much as we can, even if we're not trained like you are. Um, maybe we're moving in that direction with some of these consumer companies like 23andMe and others, but um, we still have a long way to go. What are you most excited about in the future of whether it's personalized health or well, anything? What are, you, what are you most excited about going forward? I mean, to me right now, you know, AI is the most exciting um, and it's literally wild how we can we can design proteins almost immediately through the computing mm. power that we have. And remember, the big advances all happened in the last six months, six months. Wow. Prior to that, we did not have the power we do now. So all of a sudden, this is a new frontier. This is like when the Internet first came. Everything mm. opened up. This is that now in our space and in many others. And so, uh, you know, I'm privileged. I mean, 
we have, we're working with some of the best AI people in the world now to try to do meaningful things with this new technology and to use it in ways that better humanity. And mm. it's literally every day, you know, there are not enough hours in the day to make those advances. And at the same time, we start to see that we've got drugs that are working now. So you couple that with AI, we're going to make them better. You couple that with AI, we're going to make it so I can get that next generation with fewer side effects, better outcome. Mm. So as long as you're starting with something where you have data on how it works, you can make it better. And that's what's really happening now. You know, it's crazy, right? The day a drug is FDA approved in the United States, we stop collecting data. Oh, no sense, I didn't know right? that. Wow. Clinical trials should not end, right? What happens in the real world is staggering data that we can all learn from. A clinical trial may have 100 people, 1,000 people. It doesn't have millions. The real world has millions, which means we can learn all about it. And we can learn what it works best with, how it works best, who it works best in. And now that we transition our health records to real digital, to being data in a structured format together with AI, we're going to have insights that are not going to happen years from now, that are going to happen weeks from now and giving us new ways of treating disease. And the beauty is doing this in a computing way is inexpensive. It's equitable. Everyone will have access to this. I love your excitement. You're like jumping out of your chair. I can tell you're looking forward to the future. Um, we'll wrap up uh, in a moment. What was the Spider-Man lesson that you were referring to? With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So that's when also biblical. I don't know. spoke to him. Okay, I don't know if you know that. I mean, you, you're out, you live out in Hollywood, so you, you're more familiar with all the, the, the movies, but um, I don't, you don't live in Hollywood, but you know what I mean, Southern California. Uh, it's also biblical to those, much has been given, much is expected. It's very similar. So you are so humble. You keep talking about how privileged you are and how lucky you are. And if all that's true, then a lot is expected of you, and you are fulfilling that expectation. You do so much good for so many people on behalf of humanity. And I don't mean to sound patronizing, but thank you so much for all of the terrific work that you do, my friend. Well, Adam, thank you. I mean, it's a privilege to talk to you. You know, one, one of the real messages of the book is about optimism. You know, uh, people who are optimistic with a belief system are do much better across the board in clinical trials, whether it be heart disease, cancer, you name it they do better. And so really the power is, is having an optimistic point of view. Mm. My job as a doctor is not to tell people what to do, but to give them the data in a way that they can make the right decisions for their value system and do it in a way that can give them hope and optimism. Even if I'm not going to cure a disease, I can give them hope and optimism to be able to go to their daughter's graduation, to attend their son's wedding or whatever they, the, the milestones they want. We can do that together. And so thank you for allowing me to talk about it. Thank you know uh, you for being you. Um, mm. I've loved our friendship. I love you. And I've enjoyed our time together. And hopefully there'll be more. We'll do it again, hopefully in person the next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Up To Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. To receive our newsletter, suggest speakers, and give your candid feedback, please email Adam directly at Adam at uptofoundation.org. We would love to hear from you. The Up To Podcast is produced by BLC Digital Strategies, a full content creator company located right outside of the nation's capital in Tysons, Virginia. See you next time.